0: You're listening to the Violence Design Lab Podcast, episode 14. Today on the show, I'm starting a series breaking down my preferred design aesthetic to give you a better sense of where I'm coming from artistically. Specifically, I'll be talking about my distaste for perceived cooperation between fighters and how Sir Isaac Newton helped me learn to break out of that trap and to design better fights. Interested? Then out swords and to work with all. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast, putting the science in theatrical violence. Now here's your host, David Bareford. Greetings, David here. Welcome to the show. If you're just joining the podcast, I started this project to share with you some of my 25-plus years of experience designing fights and violence for live theater. I'm here to encourage you to enter the world of stage combat, to coach you towards choreographing better fights, and to train you to tackle the challenges of theatrical violence design. When I need a soundbite to convey my particular aesthetic of violence design, my default style, if you will, I describe it as personal painful, desperate, and as real to an audience four feet away as it is at 40. I often call it the Chicago style because it developed during my 16 years of collaboration with Richard Gilbert of R&D Choreography in Chicago. The Windy City has a long-standing, and not wholly undeserved, reputation for gritty, no-holds, back-alley fights in both our politics and organized crime, and things aren't much more genteel on our stages. Theater is a rough-and-tumble business there. Rents are high, suitable performance spaces are scarce, so many companies adopt a quote-unquote storefront model. They literally lease an available retail space or a small warehouse and dragoon it into service as a theater. Our now-famous Steppenwolf Theater, for example, famously began performing in a church basement. And storefront theater is not for the claustrophobic. There are rarely more than a 100 seats in a house, sometimes as few as 15 or 20 Raised stages, proscenium arches, orchestra pits, apron, all those traditional architectural features common in theaters from days gone by, those things, those those barriers between the audience and the actor, they're almost universally absent here. Some houses you literally have to walk across the playing space just to get to your seat, and you have to be careful during the performance that your feet don't trip a passing actor. Richard and I began working on those kind of stages around 1996, and within four or five years, we were getting increasingly dissatisfied with some of the fights we kept seeing on stage. They, they just didn't ring true. And sometimes the illusions didn't work because the fights were under-rehearsed or the actors simply botched the technique for that performance, and, and I can understand and forgive that. I mean, things happen in the heat of live performance. But others, uh, it was something else. Now, let me pull back the curtain here for a moment. We weren't just being artistically snarky of other people's work. Some of these unsatisfying fights we were watching were ones we'd staged ourselves. See, Chicago's tiny stages are like microscopes, and they accent anything false, whether it's in the acting or in the fighting. So Rick and I went back to the drawing board. We took a hard look at the techniques that we'd been taught, that had been passed down to us by our teachers. Now, maybe because Rick is the son of a scientist, we decided to take nothing for granted and to verify everything. So we took our techniques and we broke them down into their fundamental principles. We figured out why some illusions worked and tried to objectively anas- analyze why other things didn't. And through this process, we identified three major stumbling blocks to great fight. Proximity challenges, popular culture, and perceived cooperation. But proximity challenges is the one I'll talk about first. This is a problem specific to small theaters like many Chicago houses. These, some of these illusions, stage combat illusions in these spaces, they can't hope to fool an audience that's basically sharing your trousers. Like for example, the standard non-contact face hit illusion, it breaks down when audiences aren't far away enough to flatten the visual image of the fighters and to trick the eye's depth perception. Well, A move like that will still symbolically tell the story of the face punch, but it can't actually fool an observer, even when executed perfectly. The other proximity challenges of small houses is their tendency to seat audiences anywhere they can squeeze a spot, often on two or three sides of the action. And this rules out a lot of non-contact illusions, unless the choreographer just gives up on creating an effective illusion for the portion of the audience, but Rick and I weren't interested in doing that, and I hope you aren't either. The second challenge was popular culture. Now, many of you have probably seen old films of moviegoers about the turn of the 20th century diving out of their seats to avoid the train on screen that's that's steaming right towards the camera. Yeah, see, that trick doesn't fool people like that anymore, even even in 3D. Cultural norms of what looks quote-unquote real, it changes over time. I mean, look at acting styles in the 30s or 40s, even the 70s compared to today. But... Many of our common stage combat illusions and tropes, they got their start in the 1920s. And our audience has certainly changed, yes. Now, of course, the style in which we choreograph today is different. But if we're still using the stage combat vocabulary of 100 years ago, it's like trying to write dialogue for modern street thugs using flapper slang from the 30s. But what really gave Rick and I pause, one of the main problems we noticed, and the one I want to talk about today is the problem of perceived cooperation. Now, this is a fundamental problem with the violence design itself. And it means, hear me now, most fight sequences are doomed to look false from the moment they're conceived in the violence designer's mind. Now, this kind of falseness is extremely deeply rooted, and it's hard to put your finger on. It's not a lack of creativity. It's not a result of not exploring the characters who fight. It's not even a misunderstanding of the weapons or an ignorance of how stage combat illusions work. It goes deeper than all of those things. So here's the root of the problem. When we choreograph or learn fights, we tend to think of attacks and defenses one action at a time the aggressor makes a single, honestly, usually completely telegraphed attack, which the, just the, the defender inexplicably waits for, and then responds to, with the actor obligingly allowing the defender to either recover from the blow or to execute her clever defense. And yet, this way of approaching violence has very little to do with how real violence actually works. If you fight competitively, Go back and watch or remember some of your past bouts. How many double hits were there? It happens all the time. Because both fighters are simultaneously working hard to win, to force their will on the other person, and they often don't respond to the other guy's plan, even if they should for their own defense. Historical records show that double hits happen in real sword fights fairly commonly, too. There's plenty of accounts of duels resulting in what we now call affectionately two dead idiots. So... Why do we almost never see double hits on stage? Well, because on stage, choreography almost always shows one thing happening, then the next, and then the next. But real attacks often come in flurries with the defender and the attacker moving at the same time. You have attackers intent on doing harm, trying to overwhelm or get past defenses as quickly as possible, and defenders trying to block or parry or move in to counterattack or avoid the attack or get out of measure. And Neither attacker nor the defender are at all interested in allowing the other guy to finish their cool move. You don't want the other guy to get to do his plan. You've got your own plan in mind that ends with you winning. And, and that's why the normal result of many real attacks is often a muddle. It's two, three, two things or three things, I mean not one, are happening at once. Now I know, we're taught in kindergarten that taking turns back and forth is nice, but it is deadly to the truthfulness I want to create in fights on stage. And even when this sequential kind of choreography is executed at full performance speed, it doesn't look real, because it's too controlled, too safe looking, too, well, cooperative. And an audience can definitely perceive cooperation between fighters on stage, even if they can't articulate what they're picking up on. Now, ironically, of course, the audience knows on some level that they are watching actors working together to present this fight, right? After all, they, they bought tickets to a play, not a boxing match. But if they can catch the actors working together, if they can perceive cooperation... The game is up. I mean, suddenly your intense violence becomes choreography, a kind of stylized dance that tells a theatrical story, but it no longer impacts the audience like the punch in the gut that you imagined. So what's the solution? To get at the root of the problem, we have to clear up a common misunderstanding of what choreography is. From now on, I want you to stop thinking of choreography as a series of moves that characters perform together. Get that out of your head and stop designing fights that way. Instead, understand that choreography is what happens when one character's violent plan smashes up against another character's plan. For example, if I'm the Sheriff of Nottingham, my plan is to swing my longsword and take off Robin Hood's head and that's what I try to do. But when Robin takes issue with that plan, frustrates it by blocking my strike, and tries to start his plan of killing me, that's when choreography happens. At the top of the show, I mentioned the Chicago style that Rick and I came to after all the analysis. Its mantra, again, is personal, painful, desperate, and as real to an audience four feet away as it is at 40. The desperate part of that statement means that I want you to show me characters desperately trying to win, doing whatever it takes to achieve their goal through the violence. They're going to keep coming, keep fighting, keep trying to win until they are physically or emotionally prevented from doing so. So let me make up an example to explain this in more concrete terms. Suppose John tries to kill Jane. You decide he suddenly draws his dagger, steps in and tries to ice pick her in the neck. Jane, of course, reacts to that plan because she prefers a different outcome than, say, dying. Perhaps she I don't know, throws up a forearm to block the strike. Now, it's so easy at this point to drop into the his-turn-her-turn turn mode. You know, he stabs, she blocks, then she punches with her other hand while continuing to block out his knife. Arm. Stop. Fight the power, man. Attackers don't just stand around and leave their weapons static or stop to wait for the other person to finish some brilliant move. If John is desperate enough to stab Jane by surprise, you have to be able to answer this question. Why does he just stop and stand there with his dagger hand in the air waiting for her cool move in response? And if you can't immediately answer that with a character reason that the actor can play, you've just set up an artificial cooperation that the audience will pick up on. Did you know that Sir Isaac Newton had a lot to say about violence design? Yeah, you know the guy, the apple falling gravity theory, that guy. Now, whether he extrapolated this particular truth or not, Newton's first law of motion, sometimes called the law of inertia, is a powerful force in fights. Do you remember that law from school? It said every object persists in its state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. I know, I know, you were a theater major, but bear with me. After all, the tagline to the website is putting the science in theatrical violence, in this case, literally. But the application of Newton's law to fight choreography is this. Remember all those double hits you see in Bounce? They happen because once someone has decided to take the initiative and attack, they have a kind of inertia behind them. I mean, not just their physical and kinetic energy, but also an emotional resolve and a mental picture of the outcome of their action. And it actually takes mental energy to remember to let the visual data of what's actually happening interrupt that mental attack picture and influence your action. If you're a defender, the inertia pins you in place until you figure out that you're being in a, uh, that you're being attacked, and in what manner, and you think of some way to respond. If you're familiar with the OODA loop, you know observe, orient, decide, act. You know the defender is always playing catch-up to the a, uh, to the attacker. So let's see how this 17th-century physicist can teach us to design better fights. Take our fictional example of John trying to kill Jane with a dagger. In that example, stop thinking of the initial attack as a discrete or individual move. You know, John steps in and stabs down with his weapon. No. Think of what you might call John's inertia along his straight line, meaning his goal, which is what? It's to hurt Jane as rapidly and badly as possible until she dies. And he's going to continue on that line until some outside force compels him to change. So what kind of force would compel an attacker to stop or change course? Well, from a defender's standpoint, there are two major options, physical force or emotional force. Physical force is pretty obvious. If suppose Jane sees John's attacks coming, and if she drops low and leg sweeps him, knocking him on his butt before the strike lands, her physical force trumps his momentum and knocks him off his straight line, doesn't it? But here's the key. To be effective, Jane's force response must be powerful enough to overcome John's inertia, to compel him to change his plan. Now, from my design standpoint, a simple forearm block isn't enough physical force to stop John. He's got momentum on his side. I mean, one denied attack doesn't compel him to change yet. Now, how he continues is up to the... It it changes based on the design I'm going for. Maybe he retracts his strike really fast and stabs two or three more times. Maybe he punches with, with his other hand. Maybe he slams his body into Jane to knock her down, whatever. But I don't allow his character to stop and wait for Jane just because it's time to do choreography. But what if Jane started to throw a punch back? Wouldn't that stop, John? Aha! Now we're talking about emotional force. Emotional force is a change in John's perceived situation that's strong enough to make him willingly reverse his attack inertia. In other words, John sees something that makes him decide to stop attacking. Now, self preservation is the emotional force we see the most often. Turns out not dying, yeah, it's a strong motivator. If John makes an attack that gets blocked and then immediately sees Jane stabbing back at him, it's fairly common for John to decide he doesn't want to get shanked at this time, whereupon he tries to defend himself. Now, with the self-preservation motivator, the less willing the character is to risk injury, the more effective this kind of emotional force will be against them. Note that self-preservation, it doesn't require the defender to to counterattack to provide the emotional force, you know, to convince me to reverse my attack inertia. If I make a rapier lunge and get parried, I may well decide to recover back from the lunge and go on the defensive simply on the knowledge that my lunge left me in an exposed position where I might be attacked and reposed. I decide to reverse my attack inertia even though my opponent hasn't yet started a visible counterattack. And that kind of response shows a careful or fearful or tactical fighter at work. But sometimes, though, self-preservation is not a strong enough motivator. Occasionally, dramatic situations will arise that cause a character to decide that the goal of their attack is of greater importance than their personal well-being. These are the kinds of characters who sheathe the opponent's sword in their body in order to get close. The soldiers who charge a machine gun nest en masse, knowing that many of them will never make it. And it's the same as unarmed airline passengers who attack knife-wielding hijackers who have control of the plane. In that situation, the imminent threat doesn't carry enough emotional force to stop their attack inertia. This is the reason that many gun manufacturers talk about stopping power. Because if the threat of imminent harm is not enough to change an attacker's mind, the attacker must fall back on the physical force of the attack. A swipe from a terrorist box cutter doesn't have a lot of physical force behind it, and it's unlikely to stop a determined attacker. This is one reason, by the way, the 20th century U.S. Army changed the caliber of their sidearms from 38 to the now classic 45 because in the Philippines, they found the smaller pistols were not powerful enough to knock down enemy fighters before they were in range to use their machetes on U.S. soldiers. Now, there are other kinds of emotional forces that can be at work in a scene. Morality often comes up in dramatic scenes, and it can stop an attack in its tracks. In our scenario, suppose Jane disarms John's knife, renders him defenseless, and is about to cut his throat, but something deep within her moral fiber, or squeamishness about killing, stays her hand, and she doesn't carry the attack through. Surprise is another emotional force. Imagine John is attacking an unknown enemy soldier, but when he knocks his foe down, the soldier's helmet rolls away, And he recognizes his sister Jane and stops his killing strike in mid-swing. My friends and regular listeners may also remember that my father was a police officer and as such got into not infrequent physical altercations. He told me one of his favorite tactics when someone tried to take a swing at him was to shout, wait a minute, really loud. Almost invariably, the guy would check his punch mid-swing in surprise, allowing down a window of opportunity to take him down. And I'm sure you can think of many other examples of emotional force. Basically, anything that causes the attacker to try to counter their own attack inertia. That aspect of trying to counter one's own inertia... That's an important one because it's not always successful. An attacker may be too off balance or too out of position to respond to a counterattack. Or a defender may not realize in time that an attack is coming or that their first defense was responding to a feint. So, what about that double hits thing that I mentioned at the top of the episode? Why do they happen? Well, two main reasons. The first is simply committing so much physical force into the attack that we can't muscularly stop in time to react to an incoming counterattack. But remember, I also said that emotional force is a change in an attacker's perceived situation, strong enough to make them change course? Well, when an attacker fully commits to an, an attack, actually trying to land a good hit... The attack not only requires physical force to carry it out, but it needs emotional force to decide where and when to strike and to risk injury by doing so. The emotional force part of that equation tends to give us a kind of tunnel vision because we visualize our successful attack and we strive to make it a reality, meaning we are literally sometimes so busy attacking that we don't notice we're being attacked back. It takes discipline and practice to train ourselves to really observe and respond to threats that happen during our own attack before we complete our mental picture. So double hits are often a result of us, both of us really, seeing openings about the same time and deciding to attack, but throwing so much emotional and physical inertia behind the strike that we either can't change course or don't even recognize the other attack coming in as we strike. And of course, the downside is, part of the dilemma of conflict is that tentative attacks, without enough physical and emotional force, they have little chance of landing. So, too little, and you won't get a hit, too much, and it's succeed or die. So, what does all this science talk of inertia mean for the violence designer? Well, if you're looking to make your fights look like real people are fighting rather than actors are doing stage combat, incorporate inertia and do everything you can to avoid the your turn, my turn trap for your fighters. We should never see a character just standing there waiting to be acted upon. I mean, assuming they're aware of their attacker. They should always be either attacking, defending, or trying to change their current state. I mean, you can always choreograph a character struggling to reverse their own inertia and failing to do so, but never allow them to simply wait for the other person to take their turn. Never let the audience catch them static it's also easy to forget to add double hits and aborted attacks into our design, maybe call it choreographic inertia, but it's easy to start stringing complete moves in together into a synchronous of choreography and to forget that characters shouldn't know what the other person is going to do. We should see them occasionally be wrong, be forced to suddenly change their course midstream or to suffer the consequences for not responding to their opponent. We need those moments in there to show the characters desperately trying to win. It's a hallmark of my Chicago-style choreography, and I hope you'll find it useful in your work as well. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, please let others know about it. One way to do that is to head on over to iTunes and leave me some stars and a review on the podcast page. For the rest of May, I've got a special offer for you. If you leave a review on iTunes and let me know about it on the Violence Design Lab Facebook page, I'll include you in my private Facebook group called the Historical Stage Combat Forum. It's an invitation-only group for people who are interested in both historical fighting styles and stage combat. And you can interact and ask questions of me and members from around the world who share our interest. So do that. Let me know about it, and I'll send you an invite. Now, Normally, this group is only open to my Patreon supporters, but for May, I'm opening it up to anyone who leaves me a review on iTunes. And speaking of Patreon, this podcast is entirely supported by the generosity of you, the listeners. You'll notice there are no ads or corporate sponsorship. So if you'd like to help out to keep this project going week after week, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Violence Design Lab, and enter your pledge. Each level of support has its rewards, including transcripts of these regular episodes and full uncut video footage of my interview episodes. Thanks in advance for your support. So until next week, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com.